Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press the star then the zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mester, Senior Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Anna, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's Cancer Care Connect Education Workshop, I Envision Changes Related to Cancer Treatments. And this is a very special program that we um, offer either once or twice a year, and it's very specific to um, eye and vision changes that people may experience on, when they're undergoing cancer treatments. Um, today's program is supported by the Sarah K. de Coisot Perpetual Charitable Trust, and I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Um, now, we have on the program today over 204 participants. You come primarily from the United States, from both urban, rural, suburban, and frontier communities. And we also have international participants from uh, Austria, Canada, and the United Kingdom. So it's really a bit of a global call as well. And we're delighted to have all of you on the call today. And now, um, I, it's my pleasure to introduce our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Uh, Dan Gumbos. Dr. Gumbos is Professor and Section Chief, Section of Ophthalmology, Department of Head and Neck Surgery, Division of Surgery, University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center, Associate Professor, Ophthalmology, Baylor College of Medicine, Ophthalmology. And Dr. Gumbos will be addressing an overview of common eye and vision changes related to cancer treatments, discussion of common eye and vision changes, including causes and risk factors, and tips to manage changes in vision, including cataracts, floaters, flashing lights, low vision, and the multidisciplinary team. It's my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Gumbos. Well, thank you so much, and uh, very appreciative to be with you all here today, both um, in the United States and around the world. Um, and I'm very grateful that um, there's an opportunity to focus on eye issues, which uh, probably uh, deserve a significant uh, amount of discussion because they do really impact every patient to some extent with cancer care and cancer management. First of all, it's probably a good idea um, uh, as you're dealing with cancer to first and foremost have a good and thorough ophthalmic assessment. And that might not be the first thing on your mind, um, but it really is helpful to sort of understand what the underlying status of the eye is as you begin your journey in cancer care. Um, some common issues that come up are, is it appropriate to continue to wear contact lenses? Are your contact lenses fitting well? Um, the management that you undergo may necessitate that you hold back on wearing contact lenses, particularly certain administration of some chemotherapeutic agents. Um, so I think that's the beginning uh, of having a good discussion. It's important to understand that as part of your cancer management, there may be changes that you can anticipate with your glasses, your glasses prescription, and your vision. Certain drugs that are commonly used, like steroids, 
uh, can have uh, impact on glasses prescription. They do so by potentially um, changing blood sugars uh, and or potentially causing cataract formation. And so having an understanding of um, what the ocular apparatus is from the start and having a good uh, ophthalmic dilated exam uh, is critical. Another issue that comes up um, besides uh, the need for glasses prescription is a dry eye. And those patients that already have a predisposition to dry eye and already have a dry eye, that may become a greater um, problem or a greater issue in their cancer care. And so getting ahead of the game and having that discussion with your eye care provider up front um, before there's an opportunity for things to progress is important. There are certain treatments, for instance, like radiation therapy, particularly to the head and neck region, that can severely impact the ocular apparatus and, um, and worsen dry eye. It's important for your ocular health, especially if you have underlying predisposition to diabetes or hypertension, to have that discussion with your cancer provider and your primary care provider, because again, those are things that always impact ocular care. Now, one thing that people don't realize is that unfortunately, they may at some point need to be on pain medication as part of their cancer management. Certain narcotics can certainly impact the ability of the eye to see it near. And so these are things that are worth anticipating. As we move forward in targeted therapy and the amazing um, era that we live in curing cancers of diseases that we never once thought were curable, we now are in the era of transitioning not only from providing patients with chemotherapy, but targeted therapies and immunotherapies. And uniquely, these drugs have different side effects potentially on the eye. And it's really critical that you talk to your primary care provider, your oncologist, and your ophthalmologist about these drugs. Some agents have very specific ocular problems. And so it's helpful for the ophthalmologist to see you in advance of being on those medications so that uh, if a toxicity occurs, there can be a communication between the ophthalmologist and the medical oncologist. And I think all of us uh, on this call will agree that good communication is the key, a hallmark, to providing uh, the balance between uh, good oncologic care and quality eye care. Finally, I want to go to some certain symptoms that should always result in you contacting your uh, ophthalmologist and your medical oncologist. Now, sometimes when patients see floaters they, or rare flash of light, they may discount that to normal aging effects, and it might be. But in the setting of having a um, systemic malignancy and getting treatment for that, you should always uh, bring that immediately to the attention of your eye care provider and your medical oncologist, because in some instances, they may be a sign of something more serious, and they may be something that requires immediate uh, ophthalmic and medical attention. So symptoms like flashing lights and floaters, changes in side vision, these are things that uh, the cancer patient really should always presume is uh, uh, potentially an emergency and therefore bring to their, um, the attention of their medical oncologist. So I hope that gives you a little bit of an overview of things 
the critical take-home message is it's critical to have a good ophthalmic assessment at the time of cancer diagnosis. Very important to have a good ophthalmic assessment before you initiate uh, therapy. And it's critical that your medical oncologist and your ophthalmologist communicate well. And if they can do so within the same institution and have access to each other's medical records, so much better for your care. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here today, and I wish you all the best. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Gumbos. That was really outstanding and really set the stage for today's program. Uh, just a wonderful presentation, identifying a lot of issues that our participants may not have been aware of. And so um, thank you. And I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you so much. Um, and our, our next speaker is Dr. Brian Marr. And Dr. Marr is the John Wilson SB MD Professor of Ophthalmology. He's, Columbia University, he's at Columbia University Medical Center. New York Presbyterian Columbia University Irvine Medical Center. And Dr. Marr will be addressing how eye products help you manage eye and vision concerns, including dry eyes, watery eyes, itching eyes, blepharitis, and loss of eyelashes, guidelines for eye examinations and checkups, and clinical trials, how research increases your treatment options. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Marr. Thank you, Carolyn, and it's great to be here. And so I appreciate Dan's introduction to some of the challenges that we face with uh, eyes and cancer care. And if anyone's been to the pharmacy, sometimes if you go to the eye section, it can be overwhelming and you can see all these different products and, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to choose and figure out first what you need and which one to choose. So as mentioned before, some of the common uh, problems in the eyes uh, that can develop during cancer care are dry eyes, which is basically the uh, failure of the body to produce a, um, a covering, a protective covering of the surface of the eye, which is usually made up of water and oil and um, mucus, which is balanced to create this tear film. And if that breaks up, it can cause symptoms. But like redness, burning, tearing, which seems kind of ironic when, you know, your eyes are dry, why would they be tearing? But it, actually what happens is you can get damage to the surface of the eye and that causes a reflex of tearing, so the body tries to heal itself. So sometimes the first symptom of dry eyes is tearing. Um, so that can be kind of confusing to patients when they say, oh, how can my eyes be dry when they're tearing? It also can cause a change in vision, almost like you're in a steam room or a hazy vision where you don't really realize that it's the dryness that's causing that. And in severe cases, that chronic dryness can lead to scarring. That scarring can make the surface of the eye more susceptible to infections, and you can actually have permanent visual loss. So it is an important thing to stay on top of. Um, so what do we do with dry eyes? Well, there's multiple products out there that will help from just artificial tears, where it's basically a topical drop that you put in the eye, and it replaces the body's normal tear function. Uh, and it can come in different strengths, and that depends on the viscosity or the thickness of the drop. So, you know, there's the ones that you can use very frequently. Uh, there's ones that are supposed to last longer and they may be a little thicker. And there's actually gels that you can put into the eye that last even longer. And sometimes those are good at nighttime before bed because they can influence the vision if you use them too much. Uh, or if you, if you use them during the day, it can cause like a little haze in the vision. But with those, um, the idea of 
the use of those is to prevent the symptoms from occurring, not treat the symptoms that have occurred, which means that you want to use those prophylactically um, to prevent your eyes from getting dry because once they start tearing and once you have your symptoms, it's almost too late that the drops don't help as well. Uh, and a lot of patients will complain that, oh, I, my eyes start to burn and, and get blurry and I use the drops and they don't do much. Well, that's because some of the damage has already happened and you're trying to play catch up. Um, there's other different types of medication that you can use for, for dry eyes, and they include prescription medications. Um, throughout the dryness process, it can cause inflammation in the eye, and there's medications out there that decrease that inflammation. You may have heard of them advertised on TV, like Restasis or Zydra or Sequa, and these are all medications that are used as a chronic use type of medication, maybe twice a day or once a day, depending on the type of medication, that decrease the inflammation in the eye and the symptoms of the dry, dryness to offer relief. So what I, I, the other thing that you should know about artificial tears is they come in preservative and preservative-free. So some people will become sensitive if they use the artificial tears a lot to the preservatives, and that may cause irritation as well. And in that case, you can use a preservative-free uh, drop. So I kind of suggest if you're having symptoms of dry eye to start with uh, an artificial teardrop uh, over-the-counter of any brand, uh, and if, if you're using it fairly frequently, use a preservative-free one. If for some reason that that doesn't seem to help, there's, uh, you can seek care with your ophthalmologist and look for prescription eye medication. There are also punctal plugs where they put a little tiny device to prevent the tears from draining into the normal drainage system of the eye. And that can, it's a small procedure that um, plugs up those tear ducts to help with dry eyes. And there's also lacrosserts. There's little tiny implants that you can put in the, the bottom of the eye that cause um, a, a slow release of a teardrop solution. Um, and so you can manage the, the dry eyes that way. Another common problem is itching, so you have to differentiate between burning and itching. Uh, burning is usually with dryness, itching is usually allergies, um, and there's a host of different allergy drops that you can use. But don't use allergy drops for dry eyes and vice versa. Don't use um, artificial wetting drops for allergies because they are not as effective. Um, and then another um, problem is what we call blepharitis, and that's an inflammation of the eyelids, which can cause an itchy sensation around the eyes as well. And that's uh, caused by a buildup of uh, dead skin, bacteria, flora um, around the eyelashes and cause irritation and swelling and dysfunction of the tear, uh, tear film. And so ways to combat that is you can actually keep the eyelids clean by using daily hygiene where you actually use a, a gentle soap on the eyelashes and rinse with water to keep them clean. Uh, there's also um, prescription medications that you can actually spray on or um, over-the-counter wipes to clean the lashes. Uh, there's also medications that you can take that uh, help with the secretions of the eyelids. One of them, like doxycycline, uh, is an antibiotic that has a side effect that actually helps with blepharitis. And there's a, a antibacterial sprays like Avanova, which can be used on the surface of the eye to just decrease the ab abnormal flora on the surface of the eyelids. But it can be quite daunting to try to take care of these somewhat annoying but very common 
effects, and they, they seem to um, affect people under cancer care um, because some of the medications and uh, the physical stress of the body uh, can make those symptoms worse. So those are kind of a little bit of some guidance of how to uh, use some of the products that are out there and what they are. The next thing that I was uh, charged to talk about is about frequent check or how to manage your checkups with the ophthalmologist. As Dan pointed out, um, you should get a baseline. You should go to the ophthalmologist on a routine basis during cancer treatment. And if you have any acute or unusual symptoms, you should see the, the ophthalmologist during those times as well. And that's pretty simple. The next that is important is um, how clinical trials in, um, increases your treatment options. So many different drugs are coming out to help people with different types of cancers. And during that process of investigation of those drugs, um, people will undergo the trials. And it's very important from both uh, an investigational um, purpose and from a, uh, a patient's purpose, if you have any eye uh, problems while on a clinical trial, that you bring that to the attention of the investigators so they can address it, number one, and get you to the appropriate care, identify it so it can help other people um, during the trial. And um, I think those are kind of the key points of what I wanted to talk about. Thank you. Um, thank you very much, Dr. Marr. That was really outstanding and a lot of really helpful information for our participants to really think about and really um, work with their healthcare team. Um, these are wonderful suggestions, and I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A, so thank you, thank you so much. Um, and our next speaker is Dr. Michael Wong, and Dr. Wong is Professor Cutaneous Cancers, Medical Oncology, Executive Director, Integration and Program Development, Cancer Network, the University of Texas, MD Anderson Cancer Center. Dr. Wong will be addressing communicating with your healthcare team, um, regarding uh, with telehealth, telemedicine appointments, roadmap to prepare for telehealth, telemedicine appointments, including technology, prepared list of questions, follow-up appointments, and discussion of open notes, and quality of life concerns. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Wong. Thank you very much, Dr. Mesner. It's my distinct pleasure and honor to be with you today and to join an esteemed faculty, including Dr. Gombos and Dr. Marr. Uh, COVID has really changed the way that we uh, interact between patients and physicians, and one of the things that's come from that is the advent and the increasing use of telemedicine. And I want to spend some time on this today because it's a brand new way of doing things, and it's particularly important in view of what we just talked about here today. Uh, and in fact, some surveys show that up to uh, a third of patients, uh, even now, are, um, are interacting with their healthcare team via televisits. So what is that? This is a, uh, I define televisits as visits in which we're not in person, face-to-face, -face, but remote and using technology to connect us together. And this, this technology can be uh, as simple as a telephone and all the way to a webcam on a desktop computer. And most of us use some sort of device like a, a tablet, or a phone, but this is not easy technology, although uh, I always make the joke that anyone under the age of 16 can probably use these uh, like they're breathing. 
I have an 89-year-old mom, which during COVID, we got her an iPad. And, and uh, the other day, I have to tell you how frustrating it was to have her point the camera at a skin lesion that she was having. Uh, and uh, it really tested my patience. Uh, and, and, and the reality is that technology is, is in the eye of the beholder. And so how do you manage this? Uh, many offices, their best practice is that if we're doing telemedicine, at least for the first time, that someone in the office reaches out to that patient. So we here at MD Anderson have a routine where uh, uh, when they come to our uh, sort of front desk for the first in-person visit, we sort of check in with them to make sure they know how to use telemedicine to make sure that they're hooked up to our uh, electronic medical record and management system. We use my chart here as do many other institutions. The day before their televisit, we actually have someone in our office reach out to them. Uh, and so my hope is that uh, you too will have this opportunity to interact with your team. And what I'm asking you to do is to really reach out to them and uh, make sure that you understand how to use the technology that you have. And I, also, I always tell folks uh, the default setting is a telephone. So there are situations here sometimes even as we're trying to connect and it's obvious that we're not connecting, we'll just use a telephone to do it. It's suboptimal, but it's a way to communicate. So at the core of it is communication. Dr. Gomez raised some very interesting points, and I want to just focus on one of them, which is um, to talk about what medicines you're on. And this really speaks to being prepared for your visit. And I tell folks to have a list of the medications that you are taking with you, um, it's important. You can, it can be as easy as a printout you got from your, um, from your primary care or from your visit here, <clears throat> excuse me, with the oncologist, or just having your pill bottles there because uh, some of the things that we're talking about as they pertain to eye symptoms have to do with the medications that you're on. Also importantly, if you're getting medicines that are infusional, i.e. Uh, intravenous, important to tell them when that happened, uh, and if you know uh, and able to convey this, the type of medication you're on. Why is this important? Because some of the things that we're dealing with are consequences of the cancer therapy that you're on. And obviously, uh, um, you know, if uh, giving the person on the other end of the line, if this is someone who's on call and not your regular physician uh, or team member, giving them a sense of what is the, uh, the cancer that we're dealing with. Some cancers... Uh, have direct impact upon the eye, and, and that's important to know. From the point of view of medications and the impact of, uh, it can have on, on you, it's important to realize that, uh, that we are in the uh, era of immunotherapy, using your body's immune system to fight the cancer. This is brand new stuff. It's a new approach to medicine. And so uh, conveying that to the person on the other end of the line is very important because that is distinctly different and what we have done predominantly in the past, uh, still very useful, still has a place, which is uh, combination cytotoxic chemotherapy. These are all very useful things. They all have their place in the cancer treatment, and therefore knowing what you're on, very, very important. You may even have the drug sheets. We commonly, when we treat patients, give them uh, written information on, uh, with the name of the drug on it. That's very, very important. Writing things down is important as well because I always tell folks a couple of things. I tell them when you're going to interact with me, please write down the, 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 the most important things impacting you right now. And they also may be quality of life things. 
you can, and this is <clears throat> a way of prefacing this, is saying, uh, you know, this really affects me in the following way. You almost have to prime the doctor or the person at the other end as to the importance, right? I don't have you face-to-face, so therefore I cannot pick up uh, your 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 sort of uh, meta message, uh, the look of concern on your face, the you know the 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 way you you hold yourself in this, in this, in 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 in, uh, in concern, uh, we don't pick up on that. And likewise, I give my per- patients when I uh, uh, when I speak to them full permission to interrupt the doctor. I can't see your face sometimes if I'm doing just a telephone call, and so I say you know I'm going to be rambling on. Just speak up, please. Right? Most people are very polite and don't mind to interrupt a doctor. And uh, I can tell you that sometimes uh, it's, it's more important that I hear from you than you hear from me, especially as you're trying to sort things out. The last thing I'm going to say is to, is to close the loop on the interaction. If you have access to the medical record and you can see the interaction, please go in and check the chart. Uh, so we here at MB Anderson uh, have a best practice of releasing the medical record to the patient. And so you can see what was charted and, in, and to make sure that, uh, number one, that the things are accurate because, uh, you know, the standard loss in translation thing can happen here as well. Your concerns and your, uh, the things that you find important uh, uh, necessarily must be portrayed in the chart because that's communicated longitudinally. In other words, across different visits from provider to provider. That's very, very important. The last thing I want to pick up on is, again, something Dr. Gamos mentioned, which is communication. The antidote to uh, uh, side effects, I tell my patients, is communication between the doctor and the patient. So when you're at your visit, it's important to, to ask questions like, how do I get hold of you uh, in the evening? Um, how do I get hold of you during holidays? Uh, uh, you know, and the other thing I also want to point out is ask, ask the, the, the team what their expectation is. And I lay it out very clearly. I say, my expectation is that this, this, and this should happen. Why is that important? Because if you are seeing the opposite of that or, uh, or, uh, or seeing things that tell us that you're off track, that's very important to re- report to your team. So uh, prompt communication and open communication and knowing how to communicate directly are very important parts of this. Let me repeat that, very important parts of this. So, um, and so the type of mechanisms go all the way from uh, messaging, like text messaging through the MyChart app, to uh, calling the clinic uh, during uh, 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 day hours, and uh, how to get hold of folks in the evening or during emergencies. These are important things. So communication is the very core of uh, handling things in the telemedicine world. I think I'm going to end here, and uh, again, thank you for your attention, and thank you, uh, uh, Dr. Mesner, for the opportunity to participate in this very important program. Oh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Wong, and that was really an outstanding presentation as well with a lot of important tips about the communication between the healthcare team and the person who's um, receiving um, healthcare, um, just so important. Um, so. I know there'll be questions for you also during the Q&A, so thank you so much. Now I do want to say a few words about cancer care services before we move on to the Q&A, so be sure to have your questions prepared so we can be sure to ask your questions, ask your questions of our speakers. 
Um, Cancer Care is a national nonprofit organization, and we provide a host of services. The services are primarily provided by a 45 master's level oncology social workers. And people usually call our HOPE line in the United States. They usually call our 800 number, 1-800-813-4673, and usually will identify what their question is, and will speak to that oncology social worker. And the social worker will answer their question, address it, help them, and then we'll identify all the other free services that we offer. So what are those free services? So we do offer practical, financial, and co-payment assistance services, which are very important for people, um, always have been um, for the 78 years that Cancer Care has been in existence, but particularly during COVID, they have been particularly important. Um, and um, we also do offer case management services. So if we don't have the service, we'll virtually take you to an organization that will help to meet that need. It could be about food insecurity or um, help with paying your mortgage or your rent or finding housing. Um, and so that's a wonderful service that we have. We also offer online support groups and also um, support to people who call us. And we offer these workshops. We did about 80 of them last year. And we also um, offer um, various publications. And we also have a pet assistance program for those of you who may have a cat or a dog who you're not feeling well enough to either, either take the dog for a walk or for your cat um, not able to change the litter box or don't have enough funds for food for that animal. Um, we will actually help with that as well. So that's a thumbnail sketch of our services, and you can access our services by calling our HOPE line. And for international participants or people who like to go to our website, you can go to www.cancercare.org. And now we're going to move on and take um, questions um, for our speakers. I'm going to ask Anna to bring all of our speakers on board, and she will explain to you how to queue up and ask questions. I want to take as many of your questions as possible. Anna? Yes, ma'am, and you may submit your questions via the web by clicking the Ask a Question box. And we have a question from one of our online participants. Um, uh, and this one is, I completed chemotherapy treatment um, in June um, of this year. However, I'm still experiencing their side effects, including changes that occurred in, with my vision. How long should I wait before scheduling an appointment with my ophthalmologist who might visit early on during my treatment? And Dr. Gumbos, could you address that question in a general way? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in a general way, it's always good to follow up with your ophthalmologist if things haven't settled back to the way they were. There's no way for just based on symptomatology to know if something is something serious or not serious, if it's uh, something that is still going to improve or not. And various um, ophthalmic toxicities or problems from therapy can occur anywhere from the front to the back of the eye. So I always encourage, and I've never had an issue with a patient coming back sooner and saying, you know, look, I'm still having this problem, can you check it out? Uh, I, I always encourage them to come on in and have things sorted out. As Dr. Marr had noted, you know, some things like dry eye, if we can get on top of that earlier, it, it's certainly better. And some things like cataracts are not going to improve regardless unless surgical intervention is, is proceeded with. So 
I would say that if, if, you are, if, if a patient continues to have symptoms and they're really not coming back, um, never have a problem, you know, inc- uh, co- contacting your ophthalmologist uh, and encourage it to be an ophthalmologist um, and saying, you know, look, my symptoms are still uh, not resolving. Can I come in and see you a little bit sooner? I don't think any health practitioner will have any issue with that. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thanks. And um, our next question um, for Dr. Marr, um, being treated for um, ovarian cancer, um, for 18 months with chemo, surgery, um, targeted therapy. Rather quickly, a serious cataract developed and progressed in one eye and will require surgery within the next four to six months. I always wondered if the cancer caused it M75 with a baby cataract in the other eye. Could you address this, Dr. Marr, in just a general way, um, since it's very specific sure. to this? Thank you. So cancer, unless it's affecting the eye, won't directly cause a cataract. Now, however, through the treatments uh, that that are administered with some of the the um, chemotherapies, sometimes you know if you have steroid use, that can accelerate cataracts even asymmetrically. Um, different medications, different changes in the sugar, if your sugar changes, can accelerate cataracts. So, it's not specifically caused by the cataract in most cases, or by the cancer in most cases, because um, unless it's directly in the eye or or um, around the eye, uh, but a lot of the the, the medications and, and changes in the body uh, can accelerate cataracts and it can be asymmetric. So that's the best I can do with that that question. There. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and. Um, um, a question then um, for um, uh, Dr. Gumbos. Um, what options would be recommended for addressing the dry eyes? Um, so far, use the following um, pl- prior plugs then, and despite the horrific initial pain caused by Exedra, I thought it might be helping, but doctor said, she didn't think either was helping. He is on restasis, um, and um, uh, and the ophthalmologist feels that um, is adding the problems. Told me my life expectancy was um, about five years post diagnosis. So the question is. Um, um, also, this particular person had a proton beam treatment for ocular malignant melanoma as well. Any well, way that it's you a, it's, in a general way? It's a difficult question. Yeah, it's a great question. And, um, you know, dry eye is really, as we all know, it is common. I mean, even outside of the cancer status, even with outside of cancer, cancer diagnosis, many patients deal with dry eye. Um, I can't speak specifically to this particular patient, but I can tell you how I generally approach patients with dry eye. Um, You know, most of us deal with it in a stepwise fashion, from least invasive to most invasive. So we usually start out with things that are easier, like the drops that uh, Dr. Marr had talked about, supportive artificial care, um, artificial tears, actually dealing with things like blepharitis and the meibomian gland or the glandular dysfunction with 
uh, keeping those areas clean and drugs like doxycycline can also help significantly with dry eye. If the artificial tears don't help, oftentimes the next step is something like a plug. We call those punctal plugs. We all have little drainage systems that drain the tears from the uh, lids to the nose. That's why you cry. When you cry, you, you have a runny nose. So we can put little stoppers, if you want, into that area. And we can do those in there temporary, but we can even do those permanently uh, to prevent patients from having their own tears run down that system. They sort of stay in that area. So oftentimes I would try plugs. Um, the two drugs that were mentioned are also very good, both Restasis and Zidra. These are drugs that help with the inflammation around the glands, around the eyelids. One thing about some of those drugs is you do need to stay on them for a period of time to see if they're clearly working. Now, if a patient at that point has already had tears and we've tried plugs and we've tried topical medications and we've tried lid hygiene and other things like that, sometimes we, I, I bring in, uh, I have a dry eye expert. I have a, a colleague who works with um, severe dry eye, ocular surface doctors. But another thing that works in some patients is serum tears. So we can actually take your own blood and we can spin it down. And uh, it, 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 uh, a comp there are many companies that commercially do this. They, they, your blood is drawn. You send it to the company. They spin it down. They send you in the form of an eye drop. We don't fully understand why, but there are some factors in that serum that is very uh, soothing to the ocular surface. And I've really seen that be a game changer in some patients. So I would say taking a stepwise approach, trying the least invasive to the most invasive at the end, and then maybe even seeking out someone whose practice is on dry eye. And there are specialist centers, many at university centers where an individual have focused their career on dry eye therapy. Well, that's excellent. Thank you very much. That's a great, great question, great answer. Thank you very much. Um, and for Dr. Marr, um, so the skin around eyes is red. Tears that come of their own accord, not from crying, burn skin and trigger itching at other times. Is this all from daily chemo hydria for chronic leukemia? Or um, if you could just comment on this. So, yeah, like I was saying before, the blepharitis or inflammation of the skin around the eye can be caused by multiple things from imbalance of the normal flora to um, buildup of dead skin and oil around the glands from chronic tearing from dry eyes where it actually causes the, the eyelid margins to be chapped and crack um, to angular blepharitis where they can have little uh, things on the corner of the eyes that kind of get crusty and the skin breaks down. These can all be influenced by different chemotherapies, by uh, different environments, and um, but can be treated similarly. And as I mentioned before, there's good lid, good lid hygiene, some of the different medications, um, warm compresses sometimes can be a simple fix to that. There's also supplements such as uh, flaxseed oil um, that can help the secretions of the eyelids. Um, and that can be taken as a supplement uh, to help with that. Excellent. Thank you very much. Um, and for Dr. Wong, can glaucoma be a result of long-term cancer treatment? Uh, 
first of all, glaucoma, first of all, I want to point out that these are great questions so far, and I'm learning a lot from the answers. Uh, glaucoma can happen within a normal uh, patient population as is, and, uh, and glaucoma can have, uh, 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 so can, can be exacerbated with some of the things we do in, in cancer therapy. I will, however, defer to uh, specific answers from Dr. Uh, Gombos and Dr. Mara because they actually deal with this directly. Okay, excellent. Thank you. Um, and Dr. Mara and Dr. Um, Gombos, do you want to address this as well? And the, the question was, is, um, um, is, is being on dexamethasone and Vimbit post-brain radiation going to worsen the vision? Oh, no, I'm sorry, that wasn't question was, can glaucoma be a result, I'm sorry, yeah. can glaucoma be a result of long-term uh, cancer treatment? Yeah, well, so, uh, well, I'll let Dr. Okay. Moore go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Dan. You know, um, it's a great question. It's a simple question with a complex answer, because glaucoma is not just one thing. It's not simply an issue of pressure. There are many things in the cancer patient that really need to be evaluated when there's an abnormality of either the optic nerve or the pressure. And both of things are components of glaucoma. And so it's too, it, the, the simple answer is yes, cancer care, even long-term answer cancer care can impact diseases like glaucoma. But the fortunate thing is, is that as long as um, everyone's in good communication, your glaucoma specialist, your medical oncologist, they can sort out the reasons why the glaucoma is currently in its current state and then come up with a treatment plan that keeps it stable uh, and ultimately addresses it. Sometimes it is medication. Steroids are the biggest culprit. There are many other subtle things that can cause problems with glaucoma as well, again, potentially related to uh, the cancer therapy. But Oftentimes, as Dr. Moore said, sort of a secondary side effect, not directly involving the eye. But rarely, it, it can even involve the eye as well. So um, I think that, the, the, and, and, and certainly we're learning some of these newer drugs not only can cause problems but with glaucoma, but, you know, potentially they, they are causing other problems with the eye, like corneal problems or retinal problems. So first and foremost is... Um, was previously suggested is always have a running list of all the medications that you're on and bring them to your glaucoma specialist. I think this is one of the biggest challenges that um, uh, uh, providers have to deal with when they're outside of a different setting. Patients say, well, you know, I'm on the drug for renal cancer. Well, there's a lot of drugs for renal cancer. We need to know exactly what you're on, how you're taking it. Is it an oral medication? Are you on sustainable doses or not. And so that level of detail is very helpful. And then, it, you know, again, for the glaucoma specialist to understand where you are in your cancer management, are you in the middle of care, have you completed your care, uh, are you on maintenance medications, uh, et cetera. Um, I think that's sort of the, the best first step to address things. And finally, if the glaucoma is really really not in control for whatever reason, it's very important that the medical oncologist and the glaucoma specialist speak to each other uh, because, uh, you know, under normal circumstances, glaucoma doctors would not be concerned that a cancer 
mismanagement or a systemic problem will be related to the glaucoma, but on rare instances, it might be. Also, certain glaucoma procedures can put the eye at risk for infection. And cancer patients, some cancer patients are on therapies that uh, lower their immune uh, abilities. And so, again, sometimes those things need to be done regardless, but sometimes there may be a personalized approach that may lower that risk. Thank you very much. Um, and Dr. Mark, do you want to add anything to that? or? No, I think, I think that's uh, a good coverage. Okay. Excellent. Thank you. Okay. Um, and um, so a question for Dr. Mara. Um, any guidelines about the use of screens and eye health? Any recommendations? So like protective blue filter screens, I, I'm assuming that that's the, the question. And I think that overall, you know, the biggest impact that people have with computer screens is really from blue light and the blue light can interfere with normal circadian rhythms and make you stay up later than you want to. Um, however, the and, and the screens that are de designed to prevent that can be helpful in that regards, but from an overall cancer standpoint, eye fatigue um, and safety benefit, I think it's more from a comfort and circadian rhythm um, reason to use them. So I think they, they should be optional, but not medically necessary. I'll see if Dan agrees with that, but that's been my, my position on that. Thank you. And Dr. Gumbos? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I certainly agree with uh, everything that, that Dr. Mara said, uh, you, you know, from, from that perspective. And uh, I think one thing we as, Dr. Mara, both very fortunate that we work at, work at large cancer centers where there's a very easy opportunity for us to speak directly with the medical oncologist and to look in the medical record and to be sort of up to date with the, the latest and best um, cancer therapies, including protocols. But again, we'll come back to that, you know, key point here is, is that for many individuals, um, they may not have that, their, their ophthalmologist, their eye care provider may not be within that same um, system and may not have the same access to the medications list and whatever clinical trial they're on. Uh, sometimes drugs that patients are on are longstanding and they're well known in the ophthalmic community, but some drugs, uh, you know, we have great immunotherapies that are out there. They're only been on the market for a year or two. And so it's okay if your regular ophthalmologist isn't familiar with every single medication that you're on. Um, and you may want to ask your medical oncologist, well, do you work with an ophthalmologist like Dr. Mara and myself who routinely see these patients and can give maybe a more, again, personalized approach? Um, I think that's one of the things that has really evolved in the past four or five years and maybe would save a little longer is that um, Dr. Marr and I just um, are immersed in an environment where uh, these latest drugs, even while they're on clinical trials, we see these patients as their toxicities develop. In fact, a lot of times we're then asked to uh, facilitate um, how the management uh, of these toxicities are addressed in the community when these drugs are later FDA approved. And so there's nothing wrong in, in someone in the community saying, you know, I'm just not familiar with this drug. Is there someone in, that, that works with your oncologist who 
maybe understands that particular uh, toxicity or has dealt with it more frequently. And people like Dr. Marr and myself routinely get calls all the time from the community ophthalmologists asking for help and advice, and I'm, there, there's nothing wrong with that at all. We encourage it. Yeah, and Excellent. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, on? absolutely. Yes. yes. So uh, just uh, to drive home another point uh, that Dan brought up is that if you are having a, a unique, like with regards to clinical trials and things like that, sometimes these side effects aren't known. And so that's why I encourage people that if they are on a new clinical trial and they are experiencing something, to really use that communication and, and let people know so you know, we can figure it out, number one, see if it's associated, number two, and then help the person that it's affecting. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you very much. And um, question for Dr. Amar. Is it possible to get cataract surgery while on cytotoxic chemotherapy? And if you could answer that in just a general way. So I've had patients that have had a very significant uh, cataract progression um, while they're having uh, cancer treatment. And depending on how it affects their visual function, we have made arrangements to um, stagger different treatments to allow for cataract surgery to be done depending on the, the state, but it's, a, it's, a, it's very important to communicate with the ophthalmologist and the oncologist to see, you know, is this cataract significant enough that we need to pause therapy? Do we have enough time in the therapy and with the patient's disease that it, it, we can take the risk to take a break or it's fine to take a break between drugs? So it's really dependent on the oncologist's uh, plan and treatment regime and the visually significance of the cataract, but yes, it has been done, and we've done it successfully in multiple patients that I've treated, and I'm sure we can all make arrangements because, you know, quality of life is 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 affected severely by vision, and without it, it can be very debilitating, and so, you know, we, we respect vision in that way. That's such a good point. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and so, Dr. Gumbos, is increased sensitivity to glare solely due to cataracts, or can there be other causes? Yeah, that's a great question. And when we hear glare, we very often think of cataracts, and that's a very common issue. But glare is a, a you know, ubiquitous uh, symptom. It's not limited to one particular diagnosis. And here again, I would hasten for someone to have a symptom like that not bring it up to their medical and uh, oncologist and their ophthalmologist because sometimes glare can be other things. For instance, we've been talking a lot about immunotherapy. Well, immunotherapy can cause uh, a problem like uveitis, and uveitis can cause sensitivity to light, which some people may be interpreting as glare. There may be some dry eye issues. And so, again, absolutely correct. Cataracts often cause glare and other issues. But um, it's not simply one thing, and I would encourage people, if they're having a persistent symptom, if they're on newer medications, if their therapies are being um, continued, to seek out their medical oncologist and their ophthalmologist. Uh, as Dr. Mark pointed out, a lot of these drugs are new, and uh, a lot of these toxicities are still being evaluated. And while many of us are familiar with the most common toxicities, um, 
the uh, drugs are also causing things that are not anticipated. The FDA uh, didn't necessarily, you know, when they got FDA approval, we didn't know everything about the medications. So, and not only that, keep in mind, and we, we talked about this at the beginning uh, of, of the presentation, common things still happen in cancer patients. You can develop other problems that have nothing to do with your cancer care um, and have nothing to do with your cancer therapy. So um, don't ignore that symptom. Have it checked out. Yes, cataracts are possible, but other things are possible as well. And again, be sure to bring your cancer history, diagnosis, staging, therapy, all of that up front when you see your ophthalmologist. And, and strongly encourage you to see a ophthalmologist, a medical doctor who's been to medical school and, and um, has had thorough training in uh, medical care and cancer in addition to the care of the eye. Excellent. And this will be the last question. Um, and this is for, um, for Dr. Marr. Um, how long should one wait to have cataract surgery after finishing chemotherapy to ensure its efficacy? Well, the cataract, as long as it's safe from an oncology standpoint uh, for the patient to undergo surgery, then if they're symptomatic, they could go under, um, under surgery at any time. Excellent. Well, I have to say this has been an extraordinary call. I want to thank our participants for asking such great questions, and I want to ask and also thank our speakers for addressing these questions in such a fantastic way. I mean, this has been a phenomenal call. We have done this program before, but I have to say today's call, the questions were far, uh, there are much more questions, we had many more questions, and we also had just great responses from our speakers. So I want to thank, thank our speakers um, for this very much. Um, and I do want to address, however, that we have many more questions in queue that we are not able to take. So I want to address that issue right up front. For those of you who asked a question, for those of you who have a question yet to ask, and for those of you who actually um, are thinking of a question you'd like to ask, please all of you go back to your treating healthcare team, both your oncology team and your um, ophthalmology team. It's very important. Um, we've heard throughout this call the importance of involving both groups in your questions. Um, do not sidestep your own healthcare providers because they actually have greater access to your medical records. They know more about you, about your whole medical history, and they can be extraordinarily helpful to you with your questions. And most importantly, as we conclude the program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with the questions you have or your concerns or in coping with your cancer and eye concerns. Please know that you're part of the community of support and we're all here to help you. Um, actually, um, tomorrow you'll be getting a survey monkey from Cancer Care, and, and that's an evaluation of the program itself. But also you will be receiving also um, a number of resources that would be also helpful to you as well. But please always go to your healthcare team, consult with them about any of the questions you ask today. I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all a very fine day. Thank you all. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone have a great day.